Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, continuing this week our mini-series of a mini-series. The mini-series is Fascism in Fiction, discussions of movies that deal with fascism or the right wing in some capacity. And the mini-mini-series, you know, the mini-series inside that mini-series, is movies that fascists like, or movies that have unambiguously fascist themes, or at least themes that deal with the right wing in a contemporary way. Today, I'm talking about one of the more controversial examples of this, the 1976 neo-noir Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver was written by Paul Schrader, it was directed by Martin Scorsese, and it stars Robert De Niro, a team that would eventually reunite again with Robert De Niro's Raging Bull. Taxi Driver is set in a dying and decaying 1970s New York City. The main character, Travis Bickle, is a Vietnam veteran who becomes increasingly unhinged as the movie goes on. De Niro won a lot of praise for this performance, including a Best Actor nomination for the Oscars. The supporting actor in the film, Jodie Foster, who is Travis Bickle's sort of would-be romantic interest, also was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And the film itself was nominated for Best Picture. They all lost, however. Best Picture, they lost to Rocky, and Robert De Niro and Jodie Foster both lost to the leads of the film Network. However, the film was an extreme commercial and critical success. It was made on a teensy tiny budget and made like $80 million in 1976. So, you know, lots of money. The movie starts with Travis Bickle, a loner who takes a night job as a taxi driver in New York City, basically in order to take advantage of his insomnia, which is implied in the film to be a result of his experiences in Vietnam, although he never really gets into that that extensively. As he drives around, he becomes obsessed with cleaning up the town. You know, he becomes obsessed with what he perceives as the moral and social decay of the city and of American society in general. He also, in the process of driving around, becomes infatuated with Jodie Foster's character, a woman named Betsy, who is working as an aide for the presidential campaign of a local senator. Bickle asks Betsy out, and she agrees, sort of like on a whim, feeling connected to him in some capacity because of his very strange attitude and behavior. They go on a couple dates, and it works out all right for a second, but eventually, and apparently unthinkingly, he takes her to a pornographic theater, which is his favorite type of media, and she leaves. He doesn't understand why she leaves, she, he doesn't understand why she's upset, or what was weird or wrong about taking her to this. In response, Travis Bickle becomes angry and increasingly obsessed with violence. He begins a disturbingly intense regimen of physical training, really starving himself, changing his body, doing a bunch of pull-ups and push-ups and things like that. This is also where the film includes the infamous you talking to me scene. So if you've ever seen that parodied anywhere, this is from this film. Uh, Robert De Niro apparently improvised that line. Bickle eventually buys a gun and attaches it to a mechanical device in his sleeve that will let him draw it very quickly. In the course of this part of the film, he kills a man who is robbing a store. He also continues to pursue Betsy, but she continues to refuse him. He sends her flowers, he stalks her, he calls her obsessively. Eventually, Bickle finds a child who is being sex trafficked, and he tries to get her out of this situation, but fails to do so. 
frustrated with his situation and with his apparent impotence is sort of where the character is headed. He decides that he's going to assassinate the senator that Betsy is working for. He was eventually foiled by the Secret Service who get the word that he's, you know, behaving in a creepy way and he's, you know, reaching into his jacket and stuff like that. Instead, he goes to the place where the sex traffic child was living and was working and kills her pimp, uh, the client that she was working with, and some of the other goons in the building. He is severely injured in the process, like shot to pieces. And as the police arrive, he mimes killing himself, you know, sort of pulling his hands to his head as if they were a gun and pulling the trigger, indicating that he sort of believed that he was going to die in this fight. Travis Bickle then wakes up in the hospital, having been medically saved. He is not prosecuted for the murders that he committed because he's hailed as a sort of like hometown hero who did good by killing a bunch of people who were criminals. Later on in the last scene of the movie, he sees Betsy again, but just as a cab fare this time, not as a date, and they interact in a perfectly friendly and normal way. However, after she leaves the cab, at the very last scene of the movie, we see him curl up his face in a look of disgust. That's the whole plot. That's everything that happens. It is a series of weird, dreamlike vignettes of Robert De Niro as Travis Bickle driving around New York, cleaning up his taxi cab, talking with some of the other people in the taxi company, pursuing Jodie Foster's Betsy, and eventually going on this killing rampage, which for the time, for 1976, was incredibly violent and almost got the film an X rating instead of an R rating. The movie is shot and edited in a sort of disorienting way. It was intentionally made to be dreamlike and confusing, to sort of mimic Travis Bickle's own descending moral and you know, psychological situation to make his insomnia and his inability to see reality part of the viewing experience. The dreamlike quality of the film also leads some people to interpret the last bit of the movie, you know, where he wakes up from his murderous rampage and everything is fine. Some people interpret this as a dream, you know, that this is a comatose dream that a, you know, comatose Travis Bickle is experiencing after having successfully been on this murderous rampage, or that it is the, the dream, the fantasy of a dying man. You know, people recognize him for the hero that he truly is. There are some critics who believe in this presentation. Scorsese and Schrader, the writer themselves, present the ending in a different way in their interviews. They say that this is what really happened, but that Travis Bickle's disturbed, angry face at the very end indicates that he is not ready to be done fighting. You know, the fighting is still in him. He still wants to kill. He still wants to get out there and be violent. He still doesn't feel like he is being recognized, like he's being respected, like he's getting everything that he wants in his life. They specifically say that they think that he is still ready to kill again and that, quote, he won't be the hero this time. This movie is a famous example of a story about a deadly and dangerous young man who is completely disconnected from society. Travis Bickle has no sense of humor. He has no friends that are depicted in the film. He is not depicted as having any family or any connection to his family. He doesn't have a community. What he does is he works. He wanders around the street. He lusts after and unsuccessfully pursues women. He sculpts his body for violence, and he participates in violence. That's all he does. This portrait of a man disconnected from society was 
partly related to the ills and psychological dangers resulting from people who were veterans of the Vietnam War and the way that the United States society treated them, the way that they felt that they were discarded after the war, the way that they felt like their experiences in the war were not accepted or lauded. Other films that deal with similar themes are The First Rambo, which, despite the fact that it's connected to a franchise that has since become action patriotic schlock, is actually a sort of like psychological thriller about PTSD, essentially. Taxi Driver is even more intensely in this vein. It is about a disturbed man who does disturbing things for disturbing reasons. Today, though, the movie is read in a different light. Travis Bickle is read not just as a veteran, but it potentially is an example of a particular type of male ideology, male-centered perspective and politics contemporary in the United States, incels or involuntary celibates. These are men who base their entire political posture in the world off of the perceived injustice of not being able to sleep with the women that they desire, right? Their whole political perspective is based on the claim that they deserve to be having sex with the women that they want to be having sex with, and that these women are conspiring against them in order to prevent this from happening, and also that society as a whole, like, you know, major majoritarian society as a whole, doesn't recognize their pain and that it ignores their experiences, right? Them, them being left out of this social world, right? Bickle is seen today as an example of this. You know, he is presented in the film as an incel, and he is perceived in that way, not just by critics, by people who are reading the movie in this way, but there are also people on the internet who identify with this character and feel along with him, you know, this anger at being left out, this anger at a society that doesn't let him fulfill his urges, and his desire to fulfill these urges by going and killing people. And remember, the people that he originally intended to kill were the some of the leaders of the United States like political world. He, he was originally going to go kill a senator, essentially a father figure to his supposed romantic interest. And then the people that he eventually kills are people who control the sexual lives of women, people whom he, in some senses, therefore, is jealous of because they control women's sexuality, something that he doesn't have access to. Bickle is often criticized uh, as being a sympathetic presentation of such a person, especially to the extent that he gets a good ending, right? Remember, he gets what he wants in some capacity. He is understood to be a hero. He gets to get nice write-ups in the newspaper, and he has pretty positive interactions with his crush at the end of the film. However, in my reading and my perspective, the movie is cynical and depressing enough that many critics argue, well, alongside me, uh, that this incel praising interpretation of the movie isn't really accurate to the world of the film. Travis Bickle is, at the end, still a disturbed and disturbing character. He doesn't get what he wants. He doesn't get praised, really, by the, by, by the, the eye of the movie for what he's done. This really distinguishes it from a movie like 2019's Joker, which I talked about last week, which also draws on similar imagery of, you know, social and moral decay up to the point of essentially being set in the 1970s in New York, just like this film, right? And up to co-storing Robert De Niro, right? The movie is also interesting and infamous for having directly inspired actual physical violence, like an actual attempted murder was inspired by this film, and this attempted murder was of none other than 
Ronald Reagan himself, the President of the United States. This was the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan by John Hinckley Jr. in Washington, D.C., very early in Ronald Reagan's presidency in 1981. Hinckley and his attorneys claimed, and were successful in this claim, that Hinckley was motivated by a desire to impress Jodie Foster, the person who played the character that Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle was trying to impress and sort of like get spiritual control over with his attempted assassination of the senator that her character works for in the movie. This plea of insanity was accepted by the jury. In fact, John Hinckley Jr.'s attorneys played the film for the jury at the conclusion of their statement. Now, while John Hinckley Jr. did not successfully kill anybody in this assassination attempt, he did shoot several people, and one of them, a Secret Service agent, was permanently disabled as a result of the attack. He did get off on an insanity plea. He served no jail time and instead spent essentially the remainder of his life in a mental institution. However, this and his reaction to the film was extremely disturbing for a lot of people. You know, it was a real-world manifestation of precisely the kind of anger and violence and resentment that the movie was itself trying to depict. Reportedly, Martin Scorsese also actually considered giving up filmmaking as a result of this attack because he didn't want to be connected to any further violence of this kind. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on, and I mean that sincerely. That's how people find the podcast. The other way that people find the podcast is if you tell them about it. So tell your friends, your family, your comrades, your coworkers about this podcast. Tell them that it's a good place to learn about the dangers of fascism and the right wing if they want it in quick little bite-sized nuggets. You can also help me out by doing this work uh, by contributing to me on my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right, that's H I S T of the right, and fascism 15. All right, thanks very much, and I'll be back on Thursday with my regular weekly news update. <laughs>